my family were fantastic, um, very supportive. Some people are a bit squeamish, and it's sometimes a bit difficult to know, you know, quite how much or how little information they'd really like to hear. Cancer changed me a lot, a lot, lot. And not only me, I think my children as well. Even it changed my husband. And, you know, even I realized there are some friends I could depend with and there's some friends who couldn't handle the support, although some I'd supported them through, you know, the difficult times. But when it came to me, they couldn't. So it changed me to realize, you know, who are those important people in my life, who am who are my true friends I could rely with when things are getting tough. Yeah, it changed a lot. Now What? Your Cancer Support podcast is an NHS podcast series where you'll hear frank and honest accounts from over a dozen cancer patients about their experiences with a disease that at some point, directly or indirectly, affects us all. Consider them your peer support network. I'm your host, Julia Bradbury. In 2021, I became one of the 375,000 people who are diagnosed with cancer in the UK every year. I know firsthand what it's like to have your life suddenly upended by this disease and the havoc it can wreak on your body, mind and everything in between. I also know that with a little bit of luck and a lot of expertise, that surviving cancer isn't just possible. It's becoming more and more likely with every passing year. If you're listening to this podcast, it's likely that you or someone you love has recently received a cancer diagnosis. No doubt you've got questions, and lots of them. Our hope is that this series can provide you with some answers. Our peers come from a wide variety of backgrounds. One thing that they all have in common? First-hand experience with cancer in its many shapes and forms. So think of us as your cancer support group, just in audio form. Today's topic of discussion, finding your support system. Having cancer can be a very lonely experience. Following a diagnosis, it's not uncommon for patients to feel divorced from the world around them. The desire to withdraw and self-isolate will be strong as you'll find it difficult to find common ground with the people around you. Those who are healthy and don't have the burden of a potentially deadly disease hanging over their heads. This impulse can also stem from a desire to be independent and retain control over your life when it feels as if control is being wrestled away. All of these responses are legitimate ones, in the short term at least. However, the idea we're going to try and get across in this episode is that dealing with cancer is a team sport. At various points in your journey, you're going to need to cede control and accept help. Whether that's having someone to talk through treatment options with, giving you a lift to and from treatment, or simply being a sounding board for you to express your frustrations to. To that end, having a good support system around you is half the battle. And the first line of defence? Your loved ones and your healthcare professionals. Once they knew it was um, a large tumour, that it was all hands on deck on their part to get me operated on as soon as possible. Once I was referred to Guy's Hospital, it was three weeks. <laughs> it was it was three weeks. So 
it was an amazing feat of um, oh, and, uh, medicine, surgery and collaboration. I do find myself very, very uh, lucky that I was eventually referred to Guy's Hospital and yeah, do feel eternally grateful to all that team there. Cancer patients, given the frequency with which they have to go to hospital, often find themselves becoming very close with the staff assigned to their care in a very short space of time. They they have become, yeah, very good friends, really. I, I think that might be a bit presumptuous on my part, but from that day when Mr Raj Nair at Guy's Hospital told me five, five and a half years ago, they've almost become my closest family, really. And they've looked after me, along with... Deborah Entig, the oncologist, and the cancer nurses. You know, I've been back and forth over five and a half years, and they're just a, a crap team that I thought, well, if I was going to die in anyone's hands, I'd rather it was theirs. <laughs> a cancer diagnosis can be an overwhelming experience, both emotionally and physically. And that's before having to decide on a treatment plan and all the research that that entails. Several of our peers relied on support from a loved one when it came to finding out more about their condition. Like Jad. My wife, she's been very good with, um, with all, the, all the practical stuff, but also, also with the research and with emotional support. She actually did a lot more research than I did uh, because I felt, well... I'll research it as I go along and as I need to. I don't want to burden myself now with lots of knowledge that I might not need. And she was the person who was looking uh, at, a, at a lot of online information and filtering through the things that she thought would be helpful for me to know. And I'm sure filtering out things that, uh, that she thought would frighten me. Sometimes support networks could be found when you're not even looking for them. I work with deaf and hearing people. I work with deaf-blind people in helping to develop their skills and their understanding of whatever it was that we're doing. Dave is a musician-turned-educator who was diagnosed with bladder cancer in January 2019. After time spent working with people with disabilities, the importance of support networks was reaffirmed to him. Whether it was just getting along with communicating to, uh, not in sign language, although I did learn that in passing, communicating with other people in, in something in ways that both sides could be, could be understood. Dave's work in adult education with the University of Hertfordshire saw him helping mature students with bags of experience but no degrees do the work they needed to do to become fully qualified teachers. There wasn't anything like it else, in the, uh, nothing in the UK like it at all. I would take them from the very first day we got together right through to their final degree, so that would be 18 months. And you enter into people's lives like that, and every student group I had who were doing that became very close to, they became close to me as well. At first, Dave hadn't planned on divulging the news about his diagnosis to his pupils. I wasn't going to tell them anything. He felt they had enough on their plates as it was. Bearing in mind these are all 40, 45 uh, people with their own families. He didn't want them to have to add worrying about his health to their list of concerns. They were already adults with plenty of responsibilities, people who were using what little free time they had to further their education in his classroom. He was surely very far down on their list of priorities. 
he also didn't want them to treat him any differently. This feeling can be particularly strong for those who choose to keep their cancer diagnosis under wraps in a professional setting. There can be a concern that there'll be a shift in how people view you and interact with you, and not necessarily for the better. The idea that you might be perceived as weak or vulnerable, particularly if you're in a position of authority, can be difficult to overcome. For Dave, the relationship he built with his class and the leadership position he'd established after months of lessons was genuine and hard-won, and he didn't want to do anything that might jeopardise that. But after news got out that he was awaiting test results, he learned that his students were more invested in his well-being than he ever thought possible. But the first question I got that morning was, do you have the biopsy? I said, yes. So, had the results? Yes. What was it like? So I said, oh, it's a long story. And somebody, and I don't know who, said, you're not going to tell us, are you? It's going to be bad, isn't it? So I said, uh, no. So I told them what, what I knew, and I told them about my treatment. And there was some, and these are old, old students, some of them were crying because we had that kind of bond. And that made me a little bit more determined to to push the more positive aspects of it, that I was going to have treatment, uh, that was certainly, well, it hadn't gone very, very far at that point, but if I didn't do something about it, then it probably would. I told them, because I'd already agreed to the immunotherapy, and I said, the only thing is, I don't know what that will mean, because I hadn't, didn't know much about the immunotherapy then. I don't know, I don't know what that will mean about uh, me working with you in, in the near future. And that was another thing that made them cry because we'd been together for, at that stage, for 15 months, on every, nearly every Saturday. In that moment, Dave learned the benefit of being transparent about what he was going through. They became such a supportive group lately. If I hadn't told them anything, I would have never have had their support in what all happened. So that was a huge support group. We were in email contact before that uh, on, on one-to-one basis. So. And it, but it just brought home to me that there were people who, who cared for me, you know. Uh, that was, a, that was a, big, a big support. Sometimes simply trying to keep your family and friends and the rest of your network up to speed with your condition can become overwhelming. Teresa certainly felt that way. Well, it does mean that people are quite frightened to speak or to ring because they don't know what to say. And, it, you know, the last thing you want is to be able to reassure them when you have no reassurance to pass them, but then you feel bad for them because they're feeling awkward. So it can all come up to be a bit of a sorry mess, really, one way or another. There will, of course, be times when people will want to offer support that you don't want or even need. Some of your loved ones will respond to your diagnosis by barraging you with questions, comfort and offers to help. It's only natural for that to feel overwhelming at times. Don't be afraid to draw boundaries. That's where having someone step in to help manage the flow of communication can be an enormous help. You know, at some point, my partner, Charles, took over my mobile and the email and he was used as a, a sort of funnel, really, for these things too. So to give other people an update on my condition and, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, what the reaction was and all the rest. So 
I've been, you know, very lucky with him too. He was like a filter. What you really don't want to do is start feeling sorry for yourself. So you don't want people queuing up to say with their head cocked to one side, say, oh, I'm so sorry, Teresa. You know, you don't deserve this. And he said, no, shut up. Don't even start that. (laughs) Don't even start it. So Charles was a very good filter and would, I suppose, be selective about uh, what he was telling me. One thing that's important to recognise is that you can't control how people respond to news of your diagnosis. Yeah, a friend of mine sent me a WhatsApp a few months ago or a couple of months ago, but someone I see quite often. And you know, he said, you know, I hope you and your wife are both well. And, you know, we are having a bit of a rough day or a bad day. So I immediately sort of WhatsApp that and said, well, apart from my wife, you know, having, you know, very bad cancer and I can't get erections. Yes, we're both perfectly well, thank you very much. You know, he did have the the grace to write back and say, sorry, maybe I was a bit insensitive. Because he'd known all this anyway, which has really, you know, upset me. You know, these sort of trite phrases are just not appropriate in some cases, but, you know, we roll them out. We've got a lot of friends who were also very supportive. There's one or two who'd got a bit of medical knowledge, who knew a little bit more than we did, which was quite helpful. Some of them, I think, were a little bit more gloomy about the outlook than um, others, shall we put it like that. One who helpfully suggested that we might start uh, creating a bucket list pretty quickly. Well, they said it to my wife, which... uh, (laughs) So anyhow, uh, my wife said to... uh, this person that, uh, no, we don't actually do bucket lists anyhow, but uh, we'll do what we can and we'll enjoy what we can. And so we did, and that, that, that was it. People will reach out with the very best of intentions, but because most of us are not well-practised when it comes to talking about pain and suffering, they can often be clumsy with their words or actions. Yeah, and because people react uh, differently... It, they absolutely were not trying to be nasty. But, you know, really close friends would put themselves in my shoes and um, maybe not use those cliches and really, really not try to be overtly optimistic or make me feel sorry for myself because actually you need every fibre of your body to be reasonably positive. And I don't mean optimistic, I just mean putting one hand, one foot in front of another, really, to get it through, because no one could know, no one could possibly know what the outcome was. There'll be times when people will offer you pity, when what you really need is help with the weekly shop. Don't be afraid to say so. People don't know what you need if you don't tell them. Much in the same way that you're adapting to life with cancer, we need to allow the people in our lives the time to learn how to support someone with cancer. There will inevitably be plenty of mistakes along the way. Having the patience to let members of our support system make them is an essential part of the process. Sometimes having someone close to you who's already experienced cancer can make communicating and accepting help easier a subject which can often be taboo or spoken about in hushed tones at first, is something you're already well experienced with. My wife's had breast cancer for 
12 years. So, you know, the word cancer is, you know, it's used in the house, you know, several times a day. So it's not a, it's nothing sort of strange or awkward. It, it is what it is. I mean, obviously, you know, cancers are very different and, and then individual people's experiences of cancer vary hugely. But, you know, the whole, um, is it a dirty word? Um, certainly not. I mean, it's obviously, you know, horrible and ghastly and potentially mortal, but, but it's, not, it's not strange, put it that way. We all like to think that if a loved one became ill, we'd move heaven and earth to help them that would stand up and be counted when it mattered most. Many of our peers have indeed received outstanding support from their loved ones. But the reality is, cancer can put immeasurable strain on a relationship, a marriage or partnership. Before all the things that went on with my husband, it was my husband because we have been together for a very long time. And, um, he was a good father. He was dependable. He was someone you know where he is, what he's doing. He was a good provider. He was a caring father, a husband. So I relied on him so much. Vimbai found her once rock-solid marriage crumbling in the aftermath of a vulva cancer diagnosis in 2015. I always thought, you know, I would be able to rely on my husband, you know, to lean on him when the going gets tough, like what my dad did, you know, like how my mom supported my dad and, you know, how, you know, how families pulled through together. At first, Vimbai's husband was firmly in her corner. But, you know, as time goes on, you know, the longer you are bedridden, you know, the, the higher chances your men strays away from home. And people sometimes, they take it for granted that, oh, because you're unwell, you are, most of the time I was drugged with morphine because these wounds, they got infected, they, they were really bad, they were smelly. Uh, I was in and out of hospital. I ended up having DVT and PE. I ended up having sepsis. So it was constantly in and out of hospital but you know as time went by that's when I realized oh you know this man he was my go-to person he was my dependable husband because I've lost both parents he was like my mom my dad you know my friend my confidant you know my other half my next of skin or whatever you call it but you know we 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 just drifted apart in and it hurts that, you know, the person who was more important and dear to you let you down. Cancer inevitably has an effect on relationships. Sometimes this means a temporary shift in roles. And in other cases, it can cause a relationship to completely break down. For people who have to get through cancer on their own, it's a whole different set of challenges. I feel great compassion for people who are on their own who wouldn't have a child's equivalent because it is horrible to deal with other people's shock, anger and misery on top of what you're facing. Thankfully, there are alternative sources of care for people who can't rely on immediate family or friends for support. I did spend the time you know, trying to find people who I could talk to and I think I phoned up the I may have phoned up Prostate Cancer UK. They've got a really good helpline. 
manned by nurses who obviously can't give you any sort of personalized clinical advice, but are really good at answering questions in a general way. And the fact that they provide this sort of on free telephone service that people can phone up with all sorts of queries and questions, I think is absolutely brilliant. Chi, at several points, made use of the Macmillan Cancer Support website, where those who may not want to meet in person, but are happy to offer up all manner of advice and info, share tips and trade stories. You know, when, when, you, when you're when you on so many drugs as well, like I was, and with, with morphine, I was like in the cloud, so my head wasn't there. So that was very, very helpful. And But also they have a website where you have communities of people at the time guys in St. Thomas didn't have this network of support where you could talk to people. So that was my way during the night when I was between the drugs uh, fading out and, uh, you know, then the next dosage was due type of thing. I would be online and just like, you know, trying to figure out what was in my mind and trying to like express it and able to find online through their website, my website, support groups. And they were very, 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 very supportive um, and very comical as well, you know. Uh, and again, it was seeing at different people at different stages, different subjects, and they answered those subjects. So instead of like Googling something and scaring yourself to death, you know, you could go to the different support groups that were there and you just not not even having to join in, you just had to see the chat and most of them answered your question but sometimes you you didn't know what it was that you were trying to like articulate or what worries it what was in your mind but by reading it, it it seemed to click and you're like oh that was why and it made me feel better in those moments you know several of our peers also found that by simply talking about cancer they came into contact with people in their circles who they'd never known had suffered from cancer themselves but were happy to offer their help and advice but i also started to try and find you know people in my circle of acquaintances who'd had prostate cancer because i you know if you'd asked me i'd say i don't know anyone at all so i asked around a few friends and relations and i I ended up finding three people, and they very generously said, yeah, you know, happy to talk to, to, to me. Uh, one of them I think I'd met once before, the other two were uh, complete strangers. Um, and they were very frank, and we had a couple of conversations over the phone about their experience, you know, their treatment options. I think because of the timing, most of them had been quite heavily impacted by COVID, but that's just a sort of detail. And, you know, I was really grateful that these sort of strange men were happy to go into, you know, a lot of detail about their treatment and how they'd gone about making their decisions. And that was really helpful, I think. So by the time I got to the hospital where I met the surgeon, I think I got, you know, a reasonable amount of information about what the likely options were. Donald found that there's a shorthand when speaking to other cancer patients. Experiences common to them all. Suffice it to say that in conversations with other folk that have, uh, that have had a prostatectomy, you know, we all smile when somebody says the catheter and you say, yeah, there's no need to say anymore. Everybody just rolls their eyes, smiles and says, you know, we've all been in the same club. You know, it's sort of a, it's one of those badges that you can add to your list. And some transitioned very quickly, like in Brian's case, from seeking advice to giving it out themselves. There's a couple who are very good friends with in Nottingham 
and they came down and stayed in London to come and see me. And sadly enough, last week, the, the, the lady who, part of that couple, she has been diagnosed with uh, cancer and we have been up to see her. So I'm afraid it's sort of a little bit of a role reversal, but um, it's very sad that that should happen, you know, with that connection. But at least we are there as support and we, we understand quite what she's going through or at least some of what she's going through. But it just goes to show that if you all pull together, you can pull each other through. For those lucky enough to have a support network, lean on it where you can. It's often difficult for people to admit they need support in the first place, but sharing the load will only help with your recovery. Sometimes the amount of help offered can feel overwhelming and you might feel guilty at the prospect of asking for space. Your personal comfort is paramount, so don't be afraid to retreat now and then when you need to. There will also be occasions when people will offer everything but the right kind of help. Don't be afraid to boldly state what it is that you need. People aren't mind readers and they might be worried that you'd be offended or feel coddled if they offered to help with things like cleaning or cooking. If you feel like you're lacking an adequate support system, always remember that your healthcare professionals are just a phone call away and that there are also numerous online support groups and phone lines available to you. On the next episode of Now What? Your Cancer Support Podcast, our topic of discussion will be owning your recovery. You know, people generally in life to say, you know, life is not honky-dory like we think it is. You know, there are trials and tribulations, but the way you rise above the tide is what matters. Now What? Your Cancer Support Podcast is an NHS podcast produced by What's the Story Sounds. It's hosted by me, Julia Bradbury. For more information on the topics discussed in today's episode, as well as links to additional resources, please check out our show notes. This series was created by the leading cancer specialists at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital and their patients, whose personal testimony you'll hear on this and every other episode of the podcast. We're beyond grateful for their contributions. Brian, Chi, Dave, Donald... Jad, John, Serdar, Teresa and Vimbai were the peers who featured in this episode. This episode was produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. Executive producers are Daryl Brown, Sophie Ellis, Stephanie Fraser, Naomi Good, Zainab Noor, Jessica Nyman and Julia Tadeo. Special thanks to Placida Ojinaka, Abiola Coca, Evan Russell and Guy's Cancer Charity.